Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And this is the show about what we need to do to address the climate crisis and how to make those things happen. This is a big week. It is. Well, I mean, maybe not for everyone, but for me. (laughs) It's a big week in lovingly crafted anthologies, climate-related anthologies coming out in paperback. Uh, That's a perfect description of what this week is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, All We Can Save, colon, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis is out in paperback as of July 20th. So yeah, another chance to spread the word far and wide about the wisdom of the 40-plus essayists who contributed to this collection. That you co-edited. That I co-edited with... Oh, my God. Introducing... A mystery third host. Dr. Catherine K. Wilkinson. (laughs) They had me back. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us because... This week, in celebration of this paperback publication, we're sharing an essay from the audiobook. And in fact, maybe I'll let you guys just introduce the episode since um, you're the editors of the book. I feel equipped to do that. Yeah, we can take it from here. I got you, Alex. All right. (laughs) I'll show myself out. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) See ya. Okay, Catherine. So this is so exciting to get to introduce one of the essays from the anthology. We adore this essay by New Yorker staff writer Sarah Stillman, which is titled Like the Monarch. Mm-hmm. It's a title that I think speaks so beautifully to the way in which migration is something that so many beings on this planet are a part of. Mm-hmm. Monarchs, obviously, are migratory butterflies. So she adopts this beautiful metaphor for migration rather than the kinds of language that we hear that can be so soulless and sometimes degrading. Mm -hmm. And cruel. And cruel. And I feel like it's really reflective of Sarah and the way that she does her work, which is that she takes on really gnarly topics, but she does it, I think, with kind of the soul of a poet. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And she brings so much beauty to... Topics that are really heavy. And she does that in this piece. So Sarah has been covering immigration and social justice issues for many years. And obviously, the types of things that she writes these incredible stories about intersect with climate. But she had never written a piece specifically about climate before we asked her to contribute to this book. So it really is quite an honor to say, this is Sarah Stillman's first climate essay. And it's a pretty cool example of what we talk about a lot, which is whatever your superpowers are, the climate space needs them. Um, And Sarah Mm -hmm. is among the most super powerful writers that I know, at least, as a living human. (laughs) Yeah. And it's really a treat also to have this essay read by actor, producer, director, activist, America Ferreira, who has been very committed to issues around immigration and justice for quite a long time. And so she is going to be voicing the essay that you will hear today. And we'll get into it right after this break. 
As an investigative journalist, I'm prone to accumulating large piles of useless paper on my kitchen table. Press releases, public records, half-full notebooks. Sometimes I go months or years without a purge. This winter, when I attempted a big one, I noticed a thick file from a story that haunted me in the wake of Hurricane Katrina. The folder was labeled Signal. I figured I'd toss it. The hundreds of records stemmed from a civil lawsuit that seemed dated. Then I read one. A legal declaration from a man named Sony Suleika. As I read Suleika's words, the details rushed back. The lawsuit involved one of the largest labor trafficking cases in U.S. history. It was anchored in the claims of 590 men, many of whom had come from India in late 2006 to help rebuild Gulf Coast oil rigs after the storm. Suleika was one. He'd convinced his wife to sell her jewelry and the family land so he could provide their household a better future. That's not how it worked out when he arrived in Pascagoula, Mississippi. There, he and his colleagues faced what the suit describes as fraud, coercion, assault, false imprisonment, intentional infliction of emotional distress, and more at the hands of an Alabama-based marine construction firm called Signal International. Reading Suleika's testimony felt like uncorking a message in a bottle from the post-Katrina coast, addressed to the world we now have to navigate, this landscape of superstorms and annual hundred-year floods and forest fires, which is transforming not just our environment, but also the nature of human migration. I spent the night going through the folder. It was true to its name, a signal, a cautionary tale. The scale of human dislocation yet to come from the climate crisis verges on unimaginable. One starting point is internal displacement. The vast majority of climate migrants will relocate without crossing national borders. Wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, in 2016, sudden onset disasters push three times as many people from their homes as conflict or violence, according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. A World Bank report estimates that over the next 30 years, 143 million people will be displaced within three of the most vulnerable regions alone, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America. Aid workers often call these individuals IDPs for internally displaced persons, but I've yet to meet a single person across a decade of covering migration issues who sees herself or himself in this acronym. People define themselves instead by the kinds of fruit trees they grew in their backyards before a hurricane came, or else by the ways their families worked the land until a drought rendered it too dry for them to stay. A conspicuous feature of life as an IDP is uncertainty. Will you be away from home for days or decades? In the former group, I think of my brother, who swaddled his newborn son and four-year-old daughter and carried them north in 2018 to avoid the smoke of California's forest fires, which had crept all the way into San Francisco. His return was fast and simple, as he'd known it would be. But increasingly, families flee homes or entire regions to which they might not have the choice of return. The same is true for the second and contested group of climate-displaced people, sometimes referred to as climate refugees. They cross international borders on account of a climate factor. Since 2008, 
some 25 million people have been displaced globally, often permanently, by catastrophic weather events each year. Others have left their countries on account of slow-onset changes that verge on existential, desertification, rising sea levels, land degradation, persistent drought. Already, some of these families have sought relief at the U.S.-Mexico border, where the Trump administration has tried to build a wall in every sense of the term. Who qualifies as a refugee is a matter of debate. Under international law, the answer looks narrow, even antiquated. The UN's 1951 Refugee Convention first defined the protected legal category, in part to cover those who faced a well-founded fear of persecution on account of threats tied to five particular grounds, race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. These sanctioned categories fit the world of threats perceived at the time by the convention's authors. But for many modern families, the status is a safety net full of holes, offering uncertain protections for those who fled gang violence, gender-based violence, or other less tidy threats. Protection for asylum seekers hinges in U.S. immigration court on arbitrary factors like the jurisdiction or even the courtroom in which a case is heard. For those who fled climate change, current law has little to offer. Modernizing the legal construction of the refugee is an option on the table to make the grounds for protection more capacious, or at least more reflective of our century's threats. But the political winds have shifted in the other direction, making attempts to renegotiate the Refugee Convention's terms a significant gamble. Populist leaders are rising globally with an agenda of contraction, building walls, slashing refugee resettlement numbers, eviscerating the post-World War II commitment to non-refoulement. The term is French for non-return and reflects the Refugee Convention signatory's commitment not to repatriate people to countries where they face likely death or persecution. So-called climate refugees often come from countries that have contributed far less to the causes of climate change than their wealthier counterparts. Still, the limitations of our current legal frameworks ensure they pay a disproportionate price. Some migrant families have fought to win recognition as climate refugees in court. One prominent example is Ioana Tetiota, who left the Republic of Kiribati in the Pacific to seek refugee status in New Zealand. He argued that rising sea levels and other climate change effects in his home country violated his right to life. After New Zealand rejected his claims and deported him and his family in 2015, Tetiota filed a case with the UN Human Rights Committee. This January, the panel made a landmark ruling. Although New Zealand's courts didn't violate Tetiota's rights in his specific case, in part because Kiribati is still considered 10 to 15 years away from uninhabitability, climate change did, in fact, offer potential grounds for asylum in future cases. For those whose circumstances don't fit easily within the categories of internally displaced persons and refugees, we need a third category. Millions of people's migration stories are being rewritten by climate change in ways that aren't reducible to narratives of escape. Suleika and his Indian guest worker colleagues at Signal International belong to one such group. The decades ahead will see countless immigrant workers help rebuild communities when their environment changes or extreme weather strikes. Sony Suleika planned to do just that in Pascagoula, Mississippi. 
Back in 2005, he saw an ad in the local newspaper seeking skilled metal workers for jobs in the United States. Suleika was intrigued. Traveling more than 200 miles from his home in Kerala, India, he attended a recruitment session in the city of Cochin. He checked out Signal's website, where he saw photos of well-appointed living quarters, a nice room with a washing machine, refrigerator, and microwave oven. Excited, he took out loans to pay the steep recruitment fee charged by labor brokers, more than $13,000. On November 19, 2006, Suleika left Mumbai around midnight. He flew with 30-some fellow workers to New York, and then Atlanta, and then Mobile, Alabama. There, the men boarded a bus bound for Mississippi. Pascagoula, too, might have pleased Suleika if he'd been allowed to explore it. The town had resorts and bike trails and beaches, as well as a history of civil rights protests that might have moved him. But when a Signal International escort brought Suleika to his new living quarters, he felt shock, according to his legal declaration. I lost my breath, he stated. Twenty-four men were bunked in a single room with two toilets. I had never seen such horrible accommodations, he said. The men's living quarters were surrounded by barbed wire fencing. I felt, Suleika said, like I was in jail. The job itself proved risky. Suleika was exposed to industrial dust, which made him sick. When he complained, he learned he had no access to proper medical care, although the company, he noticed, routinely deducted money from his paycheck for health care. Signal charged him $1,050 a month to live in the guarded labor camp surrounded by barbed wire fencing, where he described feeling very isolated and increasingly depressed. Suleika's colleagues in Pascagoula had similar stories. So did hundreds of Indian guest workers at another Signal site in Orange, Texas. These men were telling a climate story. Mostly, we didn't know how to hear it. Hurricane Katrina gave the country a traumatic preview of large-scale climate displacement. The storm damaged more than 100,000 housing units in New Orleans and pushed at least 800,000 people out of their residences. This was not equal opportunity displacement. In New Orleans, Black families of low socioeconomic status bore the brunt of long-term dislocation. Years after the storm, the Institute for Women's Policy Research interviewed 184 Black women who'd lived in four of the city's largest public housing complexes. The majority reported wanting to return to their homes, but being unable to do so because city and federal officials had demolished the buildings. The women had been pushed into more expensive housing, sometimes in neighborhoods where they faced racial intimidation. A decade after the storm, nearly four in five white residents of New Orleans said their state had mostly recovered, while three in five Black residents reported it hadn't, according to Louisiana State University's Public Policy Research Lab. Another toll of Katrina was a massive labor shortage. Across the Gulf Coast, the oil industry scrambled to rebuild. Signal International had experience repairing offshore oil drilling rigs in states like Mississippi and Texas. The company realized that profits would soar if it could help get oil companies back to work efficiently. To do so, it would need skilled metal workers, many and fast. So it turned to the H-2B guest worker program, which helps companies outside the agriculture industry bring in immigrant workers from overseas. 
But this program also rendered migrant workers vulnerable. Their visas yoked them to a single employer, without whom they'd lack legal status. One result of this ill-regulated arrangement was exploitation. On-site injuries, verbal abuse, wage theft, all were common. This wasn't true just for Signal International. After Katrina, every large-scale employer was competing for workers, Sackett Sony, who at the time directed the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice, told me. But recruited workers, he said, were treated as commodities. They weren't involved in or empowered by the terms of arrival. Beyond guest workers, all kinds of immigrant workers served the Gulf Coast's post-Katrina recovery, including undocumented workers and some asylum seekers. After more recent disasters, immigrant construction crews have proven indispensable. Lin-Manuel Miranda in Hamilton sums it up well. Immigrants, we get the job done. Recently, Sackett Sony met the workers in the Florida panhandle who were helping to rebuild after Hurricane Michael. He told me that 90% of the workers fixing damaged roofs and the like were undocumented. Many of those workers are the same people who rebuilt New Orleans after Katrina, then Baton Rouge after Gustav, then Houston after Harvey, and North Carolina after Hurricane Florence, he said. We have a new itinerant workforce, almost like the Irish travelers, a roaming set of construction workers. He added, it's safe to say that the number of Latino immigrants and undocumented immigrants is far more concentrated in disaster-hit and climate-hit areas. These days, many recovery workers come from countries where climate change has left its mark. In the years since Suleika left Kerala, India, bound for Mississippi, his hometown has been hit by severe monsoons and droughts alike. In 2018, Kerala endured the flood of a century, followed a year later by a monsoon that brought more lethal flooding and landslides, displacing some 200,000 people. The chaos spurred a government debate about whether climate change played a role and about the need for resiliency planning. The monsoon calendar has changed and its intensity too, an official from the India Meteorological Department told India Today. Many locals will stay put as already thin margins of survival narrow. Some will invest their sweat in adaptation, reforestation efforts, flood mitigation, the building of temporary storm time shelters. But others, inevitably, will leave for a jumble of reasons of which weather is one. Economic migrants, the world will call them, placing them on the undeserving side of an arbitrary line. At a migrant shelter in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, I recently met a South Indian teenager who had just crossed the border unauthorized and alone, wearing a Rosie the Riveter t-shirt. He told me that his family back home had paid nearly $40,000 for his journey, accruing debt in the hope that their son could provide a lifeline through remittances. Like most migrants, he didn't have one simple reason for the journey, which was about to lead him to a gas station job in Indiana. Food insecurity was a factor in a complex constellation exacerbated by climate change. This is true for hundreds of thousands of migrants who've arrived at the U.S. southern border in recent years. The vast majority have come from Central America's northern triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, where inhabitants of the region's dry corridor endure increasingly erratic weather patterns, including droughts and heavy rain. Gang violence and corruption lead the list of reasons that families leave Honduras and El Salvador, 
to seek asylum. But last year in Honduras, a drought compounded instability, prompting the government to declare a state of emergency. In the western highlands of Guatemala, climate change is now considered a major catalyst for migration. Adverse weather conditions have devastated crops, leading to widespread food insecurity. According to the World Food Program, nearly 50% of Guatemalan kids under the age of five are considered chronically malnourished, with rates exceeding 70% in many rural areas. Last year, more than 1% of Guatemala's entire population attempted to reach the United States. Speaking to asylum seekers at the southern border and elsewhere, I've noticed climate migration is rarely reducible to a single variable. Recently, I spoke to a young mother in Mogadishu, Somalia, whose husband, Ahmed Salah, had presented himself at a port of entry in South Texas to seek asylum. His problem's roots were gnarled. He'd fled conflict in Somalia, where drought had fueled food scarcity, which in turn had worsened armed conflict. He'd sought safety elsewhere in Africa, but finding little of it, he'd journeyed thousands of miles across Latin America, trekking to the United States as his best hope of freedom. He was apprehended and detained. Eventually, he went before a judge in Louisiana who had a 100% asylum denial rate. All day in court, she rejected each case before her. Salah proved no different. The judge rejected his asylum claim and sent him back to Somalia. There, last March, he died in a car bombing. Climate change doesn't just spur migration. It makes pre-existing migrant communities more exposed to extreme weather. As director of the Global Migration Project at Columbia Journalism School, I worked with a team of three postgraduate fellows to document this trend. We spoke to more than 200 climate scientists, migration experts, legal scholars, and migrant communities on five continents. Some of the reasons we found for this disproportionate impact were obvious. From Bosnia to Kenya to Bangladesh, refugees tend to live in precarious housing, like tent cities and plywood shacks and makeshift camps. They're often at the mercy of the elements as a result. Undocumented communities may decline to seek help from authorities when a storm or fire strikes, fearing arrest or deportation. The same is true of post-disaster aid. But elsewhere, we found surprises. The Global Migration Project team traveled to the Bahamas after Hurricane Dorian struck in September 2019. Amid the devastation in the Abaco Islands, we learned about a large Haitian migrant population living in so-called shantytowns, ravaged by the record-breaking storm. In the aftermath, the government promised Haitian migrants shelter and aid, free of repercussions. But within a matter of weeks, immigration authorities began a campaign to round up, arrest, detain, and deport hundreds of undocumented Haitian storm survivors, sending them back to a country facing political unrest and its own climate instability. Many women alleged sexual assault and verbal abuse in the process. Some were pregnant or nursing or caring for small children who'd been born in the Bahamas, but who were deported nonetheless to Haiti, a country they'd never seen. We are not just living in the age of the climate refugee. We're also witnessing the advent of the climate deportee. Hey, everyone. This is Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, co-editor of All We Can Save with Ayana. And we're going to take a quick break. 
but we'll have the second half of Sarah Stillman's essay, Like the Monarch, read by America Ferreira, after we return from this break. Welcome back to How to Save a Planet. I'm here today with Dr. Katherine Wilkinson, co-editor of the All We Can Save Anthology. Hi, Ayana. Hey. So before the break, we heard about Sony Suleika, a migrant worker from Kerala, India. Sony had come to the Gulf Coast post-Hurricane Katrina to help rebuild, but he ended up being exploited by a firm that had been tasked with reconstructing oil rigs that had been damaged by the storm. Not only this, but the place Sony left behind, Kerala, went on to experience devastating flooding and monsoons that effectively caused some from his own hometown to become climate refugees and migrants. And it can be easy to think that becoming a climate refugee is something that's only an international problem. But Sarah reminds us that here in the U.S., there are those who have been forced out of the Gulf Coast because of hurricanes like Katrina and those like her own brother who had to flee the wildfires in the West. All of these people face similar challenges. Yeah. So we're going to return to Sarah's essay, read by America Ferreira, to hear more about just what it is that climate refugees and climate deportees are facing. To face a threat of this scale, we need new frameworks, legal, cultural, political, linguistic. Language alone, Toni Morrison said in her 1993 Nobel lecture, protects us from the scariness of things with no names. But where do we find the words? Dominant groups have long used menacing metaphors from the natural world to frame migration debates. Swarms, surges, hordes, animal illusions offer nouns of choice to degrade and belittle, to rationalize subjugation and criminalize survival. President Trump rails against the catch and release of asylum seekers at the southern border as if they were fish. His White House denounces in press releases the violent animals of MS-13. This long history of dehumanization makes me reluctant to seek lessons about human migration from nature. But the animal world has more to offer than an appendix of denigration. Consider monarch butterflies, the ultimate seasonal migrants. For years, they've offered a visual language to the immigrant rights movement. Monarchs travel more than 2,000 miles annually from Mexico to Canada, using the angle of the light as their guide. They've proven the possibility of unfettered but organized migration. Like the monarch butterfly, notes the artist Fabiana Rodriguez, human beings cross borders in order to survive. When traveling Mexico's migration trail with Central American families, I've spotted monarchs painted on the walls of migrant shelters and graffitied near the train tracks of La Bestia, the rails that migrants and asylum seekers ride. But monarch migrations in recent years have also served as a warning. The butterflies are exquisitely good at climate adaptation on account of their large geographic range. But their sensitivity to temperature has also made their routes and their reproduction unstable amid changing weather patterns. The World Wildlife Fund reports the monarch population is in steep decline. Over the past 20 years, the butterflies have lost more than 165 million acres of habitat. The transnational migration of some monarch populations is now classified as endangered. Whales present a different climate displacement story. 
In the summer of 2018, I spent time in McAllen, Texas, covering family separations at the border. At a federal courthouse, I watched parents who had been pulled from their children face criminal prosecution wearing shackles for illegal entry. When I left, I sought solace on Orcas Island in the Pacific Northwest, where my parents live. My dad, in July, likes to sit on the shaded deck in his oak wood chair, hoping for a rare sighting of the resident killer whales, the J-Pod, a family of more than 20 whales. The pod has long made the San Juan Islands its summer home, a stop in the broader waters of the Salish Sea. In the winter months, the southern resident whales hunt for salmon farther south, sometimes as far as Monterey, California. But in recent years, sightings have grown rarer. The southern residents and endangered population are no longer able to find Chinook salmon to eat, a problem at the top of a long list of interrelated threats, boat traffic, toxins, warming waters. So they're shifting their travels in search of food and ease, animal or human, That's migration's basic compass, survival. In the waters just beyond my parents' home, a mother whale was in mourning. Tahlequah, as she is known to those who study her, is a member of the J-Pod. On July 24th, Tahlequah gave birth to a calf who died within half an hour. The death reflected a broader social crisis. In the prior three years, the southern resident whales hadn't had a single successful birth. After the loss, Tahlequah carried her lifeless calf through the water. The ritual lasted a day, and then another. As a week passed, the story became an international drama. One San Juan resident reported seeing Tahlequah surrounded by six other female orcas in the hours after the calf's death, moving in a tight-knit circle under the moon. The whales of J-Pod then traveled alongside Tahlequah and her dead calf for weeks. When she got tired, other whales took over the task for her. Tahlequah continued this way for 17 days and more than a thousand miles. Killer whales, I learned meanwhile, are matrilineal. Grandmothers are vital to the group's survival. According to a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the pod turns to the eldest female whales to lead their foraging efforts, a particularly vital skill when food is scarce. These postmenopausal females draw on stores of ecological knowledge derived from decades of life experience. The whole pod arrives at strategies together, turning to their culture and history for clues, and picks up the slack for one another, sharing food. The J-Pod's response to loss is one model for meeting the fear the climate crisis can inspire and the grief through acts of public witness, individual and collective, Humans, too, have a gift for this. In Pascagoula, the signal guest workers refused to stay cowed behind barbed wire. Sony Suleika and others gathered quietly at informal meetings to discuss their poor wages, housing, and food. When the men lodged complaints, a signal boss said, Indians are like animals. Signal employees threatened the men with deportation. Tensions grew as the guest workers organized. Company personnel reached out to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, seeking guidance on how to fire chronic whiners. In March 2007, Signal's private security guard staged a pre-dawn raid, seizing several of the workers who'd taken leadership roles and detaining them. 
One, Sabulal Vijayan felt terror at the prospect of deportation. He cut his wrists trying to kill himself. Suleika and some of his colleagues went to the hospital with Vijayan to look out for him. Vijayan had been a leader among the group, and when he healed, the men took their protests public. Eventually, with the help of the New Orleans Workers' Center for Racial Justice, they staged a month-long hunger strike in Washington, D.C. We were like pigs, Vijayan told the press, in a cage. Both Suleika and Vijayan also came forward in a civil lawsuit, one of the largest human trafficking cases on record, which made claims under the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and other provisions. High-powered groups, including the Southern Poverty Law Center, the American Civil Liberties Union, and a handful of prestigious law firms, helped represent the workers pro bono. Accountability took a village. Signal fought to get the lawsuit thrown out. Instead, a judge let the case move forward. Reading through my signal file from the first of several civil suits, I thought of Indra's net, a notion born of Hindu cosmology. The image is this, a net within which every jewel is tied to every other jewel. Each jewel, in turn, reflects all the others, a portrait of interconnectedness, wherein no one suffers in isolation nor rises alone. Indra, in Hindu teachings, used the net to ensnare enemies, Few strengths rival a tightly woven social web. So many of the hopeful responses to Hurricane Katrina and the storms that followed affirmed that idea. The most vital rebuilding has come from frontline communities strengthening not just their physical structures, but their social ones. The Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, led by Colette Pichon Battle, works, for instance, to advance structural shifts towards climate justice and ecological equity. Many in the Deep South are building plans for migration with dignity within communities where sea level rise now threatens ways of life. They are working, too, to hold accountable the primary forces responsible for climate change, including the oil and gas industries. In 2015, the trafficked guest workers of Signal International won a victory against one small part of this industry. After a four-week trial, a jury in New Orleans ruled against Signal as well as its co-defendants, and in the guest workers' favor, awarding the plaintiffs $14 million in damages. The company then settled 11 more cases on behalf of hundreds of additional Signal guest workers from India for an additional $20 million. Signal declared bankruptcy and offered a formal apology Signal was wrong, the company said, in failing to ensure that the guest workers were treated with the respect and dignity they deserved. At my kitchen counter, I decided to keep my Signal folder. I think of the workers' stories often amid national cycles of flooding and burning and rebuilding. I see Sony Suleika leaving Kerala to fly west toward the wreckage of Hurricane Katrina, flush with hope, even as families from New Orleans trek north their lives temporarily reduced to duffel bags. I see him rushing to the hospital to join his suicidal colleague after an immigration raid conducted in retaliation for workers organizing, then later chanting with that same colleague in the street, sharing their story with the public. The whole group comes to mind in the courtroom, enumerating and asserting their legal rights and putting an oil rig repair company out of business in the process. 
Recently, the signal workers' experience was one of the many factors that spurred Sakit Soni and his colleagues to build a new organization, Resilience Force. It aims squarely at the disaster rebuilding challenge ahead. The U.S. right now is completely unprepared for the scale of migration that climate change will bring, both internal migration and the arriving climate refugee from across the border, Sony told me. At the community level, none of this is inevitable. Communities can plan for climate change and displacement, and they can have a view on when and how and where they want to go. Resilience Force is helping to shape those proactive plans, he said, and to organize for a more effective and equitable approach to disaster preparation, response, recovery, and rebuilding. Sony's network hopes to imagine the broadest possible coalition to do the work of ensuring climate resilience, drawing on the lessons of Katrina. Indigenous communities, migrant workers, workers with deep roots in their regions, all kinds of families striving to rebuild their homes or relocate. They hope to stitch a net that's vast enough to hold and reflect them all. That was the essay Like the Monarch by Sarah Stillman, read by America Ferreira. It's from the anthology I co-edited with Katherine Wilkinson called All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. Which, as Ayana said, is out now in paperback as of this week. Mm-hmm. This essay appears alongside 40 other incredible pieces, as well as poetry and original illustrations by Madeline Jubilee Saito. And if you enjoyed this excerpt, you can check out the full audiobook wherever you get audiobooks, which has a star-studded cast of readers, also including Sophia Bush and Alana Glazer, Alfre Woodard, Kimberly Drew, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Janet Mock, Bonnie Turpin, Christella Alonzo, and Jane Fonda. The one and only. We're so grateful to all those incredible women who contributed their time to help us get this audiobook into voices and out into the world. And thank you also to the many people who made the hardcover a national bestseller and created the momentum for carrying forward the book's mission. The two of us have co-founded a nonprofit, the All We Can Save Project, to keep that mission going. We are working to nurture a welcoming, connected, and leaderful climate community rooted in the work and wisdom of women to grow a life-giving future. I mean, seems worth a shot, huh? I think it's a decent mission. (laughs) (laughs) And because we love collaborating, Catherine's podcast, A Matter of Degrees, which she co-hosts with Dr. Leah Stokes, who also has an essay in the anthology, our two podcasts are teaming up for a collaborative episode about the role and importance of women in the climate movement based on the social science research that exists on that topic. I have no idea how the two podcasts got this idea, but we're going to roll with it. We love a collab, so stay tuned for that (laughs) coming out in the fall. Um, And Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show and helping me introduce this essay. It's my pleasure. Thanks for sharing it with all the How to Save a Planet listeners. (laughs) 
How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and a Gimlet production. It's hosted by me, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson, and by Alex Bloomberg. Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre-Lewis, Rachel Waldholtz, and Anna Ladd. Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Emma Munger and Peter Leonard. Special thanks to the whole team at One World and Penguin Random House for helping to make this dream of a book a reality. And that's it for now. We'll see you next week.